Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Michael Waits. Hi, this is Michael Waits from ATP Stories. I'm talking to Andrew Nichols. Andrew is the MD of High End Media. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Michael. I'm very well. Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show. Thank you very much. It's 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 really my pleasure. And I, I like the way this works sometimes where we've already had like a five-minute discussion before we start recording. Did we? Did we? <laughs> I don't know. Was that you? Yeah. Well, it's good to get acquainted, right? It is really nice to get acquainted, actually. Um, and where are you based? You're in Singapore, right? I'm in Singapore, yes. Okay. How long have you Lion been? Lion City. The Lion City. The Mare Lion City. How, um, how long have you been living there? Coming up to four and a half years. Wow. And where are you from originally? Well, I think the more orally astute of your listeners will have already been able to uh, deduce that I'm originally from the UK, Michael. I'm from England. <laughs> <You think so? laughs> I am from, uh, I'm from a place called Litchfield in Staffordshire. But oh, nice. um, like, like anybody, uh, well, no, that's not fair, but, but like a lot of people, I moved, I moved to, unless you want to be a professional windsurfer or, right. uh, <laughs> you know, I moved to London and um, uh, that's kind of where I started my career in media. So what, what type of media, like why are, you, why are you in this business, right? I can go through and tell you why I'm doing this. I have a, a big vision of like where media is going to go. And you've kind of staked out a spot in the media, which I find really interesting, right? I mean, the reason why your company is called High End Media, it's there for a reason, right? There's a spot out there that, that needs to get dominated. And it seems like you guys have picked a really good spot. But why? Like what gets you there to begin with? Wow. What, why did I start working in, in media or publishing specifically? Um, I think, well, I think it's, it's just that I, um, uh, I, I don't have any specific skills or abilities. Um, so, <laughs> Andrew. so no, I mean, I basically, this, this is a business which, um, it, it's, I think of it almost like the glue that, that sits in between a lot of other industries. Right. So, um, you know, the interesting thing about working in media is that, you know, you get to work across a lot of different verticals. Right. Um, that, that interests me because I'm, I'm interested in, 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 in business and different marketplaces as a whole. Um, the reason why I got into it in the first place was, was basically because I, I had an inkling, um, that I would, uh, that I would enjoy working in publishing. I always liked, um, magazines, uh, and that was my kind of entry point into the business. But you've you've staked out a certain sector, right? I mean, it's really just luxury products. You want to talk a little bit about that luxury products business and how you're approaching the media that goes around it, right? People talk about niches, and I kind of like that word and don't like the word, and I think people misunderstand what that means, right? If someone says, oh, yeah, you know, Andrew's in a niche business, it sounds sounds almost derogatory, right? But it's not. It's just that it's a misuse of what that means. It means that there's there's a very specific target out there, and that target actually can be quite large and quite lucrative, and I think people misunderstand what that term means, right? But your, your niche is very specific. Um... You want to talk a little bit about that luxury space and how you expect to sort of dominate in that space? Yeah, sure. Well, should we uh, maybe if we talk about first of all what we mean when we say luxury? Please, absolutely. Think, Please define it, right? Because again, there are different ways to define that, right? Yeah. Well, it, I have to say it's it's a bit of a slippery term, to be Tell honest. Me. Good. Um, I mean, if you if you were to so if you were to look it up in the dictionary, I mean, it, it's it's it comes from the Latin root luxus, which means excess and you'd, you'd probably see something along the lines of you know it's 
it's something that you don't really need, um, but you certainly want or you derive pleasure or, or, or comfort from, right? Um, but clearly, it, it's you know, inherently subjective. For so sure. what might be luxury to, to one individual is, is, is a necessity to another. And, uh, and so really, I think, you know, it's, it's a frame of mind and, and not a static one at that. You know, um, typically, uh, it's something that other people have. And, and once, you know, a luxury item is acquired, let's say, it, in a way, it ceases to become a luxury. It loses a little bit of the luster that it once had. So, you know, it's wrapped up in emotion. It's wrapped up in, in status. And that's something that goes to the very core of, of human society. Um, from an industry perspective, when we, we talk about luxury products, historically, you know, their value is, is, is derived from, from two things. One, the scarcity of raw materials, imported goods, um, stuff which is difficult to get hold of, basically, or difficult to extract. So you know, a diamond would be a good example of that. And the second thing is um, the input of uh, skilled craftsmen and women. You know, typically, when we think about luxury goods, we're talking about handmade products, um, something that might have passed through the hands of, of an artisan or has been embellished in some way with a very high level of, of, of skill. Um, and but fundamentally, those two things make the object expensive. Um, it therefore becomes exclusive. Uh, and socially, that implies varying degrees of, of status or discernment. So, so I think luxury is, is rarefied. Um, it's intrinsically subjective um, and often pretty fleeting. Yeah, I mean, that's a killer definition, right? Thanks, Brie. <laughs> Thanks very much. But don't you think so? In other words... <laughs> I, mean, I did my best, but clearly, it's, it's not as I the, say, it's a slippery, uh, it's a slippery word. But clearly, it's not the first time you thought of that. Because if you've come up with that off the top of your head, I need to sort of start applauding. Um, and and well, that's and that's serious. I mean, over the last four and a half years, I've for the entire time I've lived in Singapore, I should say, I've, I've worked for for high end media, right? So, um, I mean, your question initially was why why we're in this this niche, um, and there's kind of a there's kind of a practical answer to that, which is that we 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 were a sister we had a sister company that was already focused on the high net worth consumer segment, and we were kind of born out of that business, and, and we can certainly talk about that. Please. Um, but from, from my perspective as, as a media professional, you know, um, being in Southeast Asia, um, yeah, you know, I mean, what makes Southeast Asia exciting is a lot of, a lot of the previous guests on your show have discussed and, and a lot of uh, 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 your listeners will be very familiar with is, I mean, clearly the, 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 the scale of the opportunity, um, but, but being driven by an emergence in, in, in middle class, right? And um, as... As you know, income levels go up. Um, you know, as income levels rise, people naturally become um, choice becomes wider. People become more discerning. Competition between products and service providers increases, um, and that creates opportunities for media companies. I mean, I, I come back to the the, the, the you know BBC and, and John Reef, you know, to educate and entertain and, and inform and. Um, that's kind of what we what we seek to do if we're doing our job well, um, and 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 as that shift 
in, in, in the economy happens across this marketplace, obviously consumption of luxury products and services increases. Yeah, and I, I look, I think that um, I was just on a call talking to my friend Dana, right? Success is a function of timing at some level. I remember I was getting into an elevator once, a story I like to tell at Morgan Stanley back in 1987. And, you know, I remember having this sort of give and take banter with one of the MDs in the day. And, you know, she walked into the elevator hall just as the elevator was opening. And I said to her, wow, timing is everything. And I'm a kid, right? I remember being a kid and I just said, timing is everything. And she looked at me dismissively and went, position is everything. Anyway, but I believe, but I still believe like I did that day that timing is really important. And like you said, we're sitting in Asia, Southeast Asia at a point where the timing actually couldn't be better. And mm. from an economic growth standpoint, you know, because people ask me, why are you still living in Asia? I've been here for almost 30 years. And, you know, part of the point is that there is a timing mechanism going on here where you're just about to get this massive amount of growth. And we've seen a ton of growth. You know this in the last four and a half to five years. You know, the markets that you're talking about today are very different than they were even just four or five years ago. And I believe we're just about to hit a, a big inflection point. And like you said, as people even just get marginally wealthier, their aspirations into different products just change radically. And media is a great entry point into that market, I think, no? Yeah. I mean, you know, if you're it, – it, what we see typically, I mean, we, you know, we have various different different products. But, for example, one of our, one of our brands, uh, uh, Crown, is a, is a watch magazine. And we publish that in Singapore and Malaysia and in Vietnam and very soon will be in Indonesia as well in print, but also uh, across digital platforms. Um, and, and what we see there is, you know, people will respond to um, the branded uh, messaging they're getting, um, you know, by, by starting to, you know, Google search or, or, or by, by visiting uh, um, social media platforms. But they get to a stage where they kind of know um, what they want, but they just need a little bit of help going from that mid part of the marketing funnel, if you like, to to walking out of the boutique with the watch strapped on their wrist. Right. Um, and so that kind of yeah, it's as I say, you know, education, information, entertainment. Um, I think you know, you know, there's 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 a function there that that media owners can play, um, and I think that's. You know, it's an overused term at the moment. I feel like I'm hearing the term fake news every day. But <laughs> at this point in time, I, I can't think of, of, you know, it seems to be more and more relevant that, that you have quality media out there providing people with the right information. I mean, not necessarily to help them buy a watch. Clearly, the issue of fake news is 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 um, is, at a, is at a different level to that. But Sure, but, but, but um, authenticity matters, right? And telling the truth matters, regardless of sector, right? So you can say, and, and I agree with you, right? Yeah, it's much more important to have fake news around potential nuclear war, be disintermediated. Mm -hmm. But the reality is that on a day-to-day -day basis, people need to trust the media that they're interacting with, and, and, and that's important regardless. Well, one of, I mean, certainly, to, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly one of the things I think it has been an issue in, in Asia for a while is, um, uh, and to a certain extent, they're a little bit ahead of the curve here, but it's paying for editorial, right? So um, people writing very complimentary things about brands because they're being paid to do so. 
Um, and, and that's something which I saw, you know, I, I, I now live in Singapore, but I did spend a lot of time in India. Uh, between London and, and Singapore, I, I ran a British publishing company's uh, Indian operation for a couple of years. Um, and, and that is a market where, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 uh, the friction between advertiser and edit- editorial is, um, is pretty non-existent, I have to say. Really? Uh, yeah. I don't know yeah. enough about that market, actually. So that's interesting to hear, frankly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't want to. I, 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 what I just said sounded very broad brush. I mean, Not really. No, I mean, it's fair. It's just a fair observation. It didn't sound actually that bad to me at all. I think any time that a market's developing, you're going to have this mm. natural development into, you know, a better model. But, but anyway, I, I interrupted you. But I don't think what you said was bad actually. Mm. Well, you see it a lot, um, and um, it's something that we we don't really come up against. I would say in Singapore, but. Um, but certainly, some of the other markets in the region, it would be, um, it, it would it would be an issue. But I think I think that changes and evolves over time. It's not just um, people uh, that become more discerning as things change. You know, media companies uh, also become more discerning. I'd like to think, anyway. Yeah. So, so tell me about this. You you have a, a watch brand, right? That's just one of them. I mean, a media brand around watch. It's called Crown. Mm-hmm. I'm really interested in because you print an offline magazine. Yeah, that in and of itself is just very interesting to me. What's the strategy around having both an offline and an online publication in a world where most of the chatter is around, you know, offline is dying? I don't agree with that, to be fair, but I'm just curious what your thoughts are around that. I'm glad you asked that, Michael. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, okay, look, I'm going to try and and not wander off in a romanticized uh, kind of fashion about print, print, you know, magazines, because I, I know that you are, you know, you are an Asia tech podcast, right? So, so most of your listeners are going to be interested in what we're doing digitally. But I do think from a luxury perspective, it's really important to, to talk a little bit about print because yeah. from a luxury product and service provider perspective, um, digital represents quite a big challenge and they've been probably the slowest category um, to, to really embrace it. And print still is a, is a sort of uh, an important part of their, their marketing strategies as a whole. Um, I mean, every year, uh, you know, Zenith release numbers on, on ad spend across different categories. And I just recently read their latest report. Um, you know, across, uh, across all luxury um, you know, print is still 30%, more than digital actually, is still 30% of ad spend. But if you look at the high luxury categories, so, you know, we are talking about watches and jewelry, to a certain extent, fashion and accessories at a higher level, certainly um, yachting and private aviation. At that level, you're talking 70 plus percent of their marketing budget on average is, is spent in print. Right, and there's a reason for that. So don't don't misunderstand. Like you said at the beginning of that comment, that you know people that listen to this, but also I am more interested in the digital concept. I would say that inside of every digital production person, there is a glossy like magazine waiting, desperately waiting to get out. <laughs> for sure. To tell me yeah. you don't think that that's true, because I I believe that really strong. That everybody wants to go. Yeah, okay. Now that I'm successful in this space. I want to do that magazine. <laughs> well, we live in a physical world. Exactly. And, and That's the point, human, right? Is that, is that, we sorry. like tangible stuff. Yeah, you know? we do. Um, and, and I think, you know, 
Um, if you look at the way that luxury companies have historically presented themselves, I mean, they, they're probably the best, actually, at understanding the fact that how you um, how you communicate your, your product and service, how you visually represent your brand has a massive impact um, on, 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 on customer perception and on customer action. Right? Absolutely. So, uh, so they... And some of these brands, I mean, some of the best known ones are upwards of 100 years old, 200 years old in, in some cases. Absolutely. You know. So they, they do that largely by controlling the customer experience, controlling the environment in which they present themselves, being very, very careful and very considered about who and, and, and with what they associate themselves. So you think about, um, you know, uh, the brick and mortar business of, of most luxury companies, you know, they put their their shops, their 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 brick and mortar outlets in the best parts of town, you know, the wealthy parts of town. Or in an Asian context, they'll usually be in a shopping mall which is only full of other luxury brands, right? Right. right? right. Like, there's a reason why Ion Mall exists, right? And it's not in some sort of corner shop. Like, that's where where all the high end stuff is, if I remember Singapore correctly, right? Yeah, certainly that's one of the key uh, the key outlets for for luxury products for sure. And so you know they they control that very closely. Now, when you think about digital, right? So the promise of digital uh, from a marketing perspective uh, historically has been efficiency and eyeballs, right? And that's especially true with with programmatic platforms. What luxury advertisers want is an immersive experience in a premium environment. You know, brand safety is a major, major issue. And that, uh, uh, that need to control the experience has, has meant that they've been much more tentative to get into, into digital. Now, I personally think that digital represents a huge opportunity for luxury products and service providers. But... But, you know, I do understand their, their, their hesitance, right? I mean, you can't control, for example, what resolution uh, your customers are working off, what their connection speed might be, whether or not they've got 10 other tabs open, um, which might have other stuff on it, which is not really um, conducive to what your brand values might be, whether someone shares an image on social media, um, you know, with one of your products, but doesn't really fit into how you how you would like your your brand to be portrayed. So right. it's a huge challenge for them to get that right. But they they all know that they need to to um, to to be there. Um, but you know, I do understand from that perspective why print remains such an important part of their marketing mix. Yeah, I mean, I hadn't thought about this before you brought this up, but it's almost impossible to hack a print magazine. Do you know what I mean? In other words, and photobomb it. In other words, I can take an image of a high-end product, and like you say, I can couple it because it's digital. I can take that image and couple it with anything I want to. But if I'm sitting on an airplane or um, in first class and looking at a high-end magazine, I can't combine the sort of super high-glossy images with anything else except where they are because I cannot hack that magazine. True. So one of the things that we've, we've, we've done um, to, to try and respond to that challenge but it's okay so there's a dual thing going on they want to do digital they know that they kind of have to do it but then going back to all the other things i said there are certain challenges right so one of the things that we've done recently is we've been investing in ar technology right um 
so we've delivered uh, two two interactive experiences, one for, for Mont Blanc and another one for a brand, a German uh, uh, fine watch brand, Arlanga and Zorna, um, which was founded in 1845. Um, and uh, it is is uh, regarded among you know watch buffs as being a a, a, um, a very you know uh, a premier brand, right? Got it. So so of all you know, so you'd be surprised that they that they would do this, right? But basically, what we enabled them to do was we 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 create an app, suite of downloads, the higher media AR app, um, and we AR enabled some pages within our magazine. In the case of Mont Blanc, it was actually the cover um, of the Singapore edition of Billionaire magazine, which is one of our titles. In the case of Arlanger, it was some of the inner pages in, in Crown. And you, you point the phone at the image and um, the app um, picks up the image and basically um, creates a 3D um, AR uh, image of the watch. So. The, the, the customer, the user, the reader can, um, can zoom in, can look right at the watch in really high detail. Um, we actually uh, created it so that they could slide their wrist into the 3D image and actually try the watch on as well. So um, that was a way of kind of uh, ticking the, okay, got digital box. Uh, right. But how do you do, how do, you do that? In an environment they could control. Yeah, so that so I wanted to let you finish that statement, right? But the point you were making earlier, and I, I love this, right, is that, and I wrote it down, they want to have an immersive experience in an environment that they can control. And actually augmented reality, which you've said is AR, right? That AR experience is exactly that writ large with technology. Yeah. So that's a really cool use of it, right? In other words, you know, when people think about augmented reality, they think about like Pokemon Go, right? Because it, <laughs> No, but they do. But 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 yeah. the same tech that enables that to be possible is taken by high-end media and said, what can we do to replicate that environment, but replicate it in a way that we can control our brand image, right? You said because protecting the brand is is important to to your customers. That's the Precisely. way to do it. Yeah, and, and also, I mean, and, and it also creates all sorts of other opportunities. So so for, you know. Mont Blanc liked it so much that they included it in a, a pop-up store that they that they did. I mean, you know, clearly you can't let a consumer walk away with a free watch, but they can walk away with the magazine and the app, and they can try the watch on at home and share it with their friends and so on and so forth. So, so where I think that there are some really big opportunities for them um, are to create some of these experiences, and and also through the use of data. Um, I think you had a guy on the show recently that was talking about seamless experiences between offline and online. Yeah, the, the offline to online is something that's really important to me, actually. Yeah, and it's a very hot topic because, you know, luxury goods, but even food, you know, there are things where the online experience is just not tactile enough. And you can talk about haptics all you want, but just not tactile enough. It's not touchable enough to to be effective. And if you can add the augmented reality, right? It's like the ideas, the technology is catching up to the ideas, right? Mm. Yeah, it's that seamless experience. It's what marketeers call a, you know, a single customer view um, across across different platforms. Um, I think, you know, that just, I mean, even just the fact that, okay, I live in Singapore, I might be a customer of X luxury brand, right? But what if I get on a plane and I go back to to London 
I walk into that brand store in London, right? And I and somebody, you know, maybe because I'm I've downloaded that brand's app on my phone, maybe through geofencing, I walk into that store and somebody walks up to me and says, Hello, Mr. Nichols, you're one of our Singapore customers. And they know that because they've got a ping, because I've walked into the, 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 you know, the radius of that geofence and they've got my customer data through the app of their brand that I carry on my phone. Um, they know my sizes. They know that I like single malt whiskey, et cetera, et cetera. It actually opens up huge amounts of opportunity, which is very specific to the way that luxury brands, through personalization, knowing their customer, providing a high-level customer experience it, it actually does you know if you look at it one way really um play to what they're trying to do yeah exactly exactly i mean look i, I talk about this all the time when it comes to customer service right you can opt into that right because there's a concept of being able to control your own data and we can spend hours talking about how much data people need to be able to implement that type of system right where they know you're walking into a place where they're providing you bespoke service but the reality is that even your parents' generation and your grandparents' generation, right? They lived in a neighborhood and they freely gave out their information. They walked into their favorite pub or their favorite restaurant and everybody knew their names and they knew yeah. their preferences and they knew like they're going to be there Tuesday night. I know Bob and Lily are going to be here, whatever they are. And they prepared like the special kind of drink that your mom wanted and they prepared, you know, the soda water that your dad wanted, whatever it was. But they knew all that information because over time, they literally opted into giving that information out to those people to expand the ability for that place to give them like bespoke customer service. And to me, the notion that there's some something invasive about technology being able to do that and make it easier for people to implement something that's been done for eons anyway, as long as you opt into it, to me, that's fine. I want that, right? I want to walk mm -hmm. into a restaurant and have the, you know, and have the sommelier come over to me and say, the same red? And just say, absolutely, because that makes yeah. me feel awesome. And and that's that's like that's class independent. Because right? yeah, it doesn't matter sure. if it's a pub or a high end French restaurant; doesn't matter. People want that. And if you're having the ability to do that again with that offline to online to traveling digital experience, then that ends up being really powerful. Yeah, 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 exactly. And and people willingly sign up to um, you know uh, uh, rewards programs and so on and so forth. Um, so, so I, I feel like the, um, the groundwork has been laid. Um, and, and I do feel that, you know, luxury, luxury companies, because of the sticky nature of their brands, uh, are ideally positioned to take advantage of some of these things. Um, so yeah, uh, but, but for us to come back, I think to the genesis of your question was why we have a print and a digital business. It's because we're responding to what both the readers, but also the advertisers want, right? So so digital, yeah, sure, we certainly see, you know, I mean, Crown's website, uh, the, the, the parent website is crownwatchblog.com, but we have a .my and a .vn and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, that, that, that has, when it launched, was, was you know, um, a percentage of the revenue. That percentage has gone up five or six times in a year. Wow. Um, so, and we see as we go forward with that, that they'll obviously, you know, you, you, I can foresee a time when, you know, maybe the digital overtakes, overtakes the print. I'm not, you know, scared about that because nope. we're positioning ourselves in, in the right way. Yeah, but I don't think, you know, I spend a lot of time actually talking about and doing research on retail, both online and offline. And 
you know, no one has ever convinced me of being a Luddite in the sense that, you know, I'm a technologist at heart. I understand where technology is going. But the reality is that there are certain things in certain products, even to today, right, so f where, where people are going to still want an offline experience, right? In other words, you never, even you didn't say you think it's digital is going to be 100% of that experience because at some level people are still going to want to go into a physical place and experience something even if that experience includes some augmented reality and some virtual reality like, yeah absolutely like, like if i said to you <clears throat> and this isn't to put you on the spot at any level but if i said to one i always use the word we, you but i really mean one if i said to a person tell me the amount of retail in the united states that's online you know if you just by reading the news you would say 50 percent but but it's not. It's more like eight percent or nine percent. Wow, it's eight percent. I, I okay. Do it. It may be it may be twelve percent in some sectors, but it's not fifty percent, right? And you know, people yeah. talk about you know, and a business like Fab, right, which at at one point was meant to be a billion dollar business, right, sold at some level for ten million dollars, and that was really just you know what what's ten million dollars in the world of billion dollar business? It's pocket change, right? The, but the point is that. There is still some work that needs to get done to move retail onto digital to a place where it's going to be the bulk of the experience. And what you're telling me, and I don't disagree with you actually, is that that offline still becomes really important to drive some of the online business, particularly when it comes to, for lack of a better term, high-end products, right? Yeah, totally. I think it's um, I think it's an essential part of the of the of the brand story. Um, what I mean, we're definitely. That said, we're definitely seeing. I mean, look, the 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 internet is just has a wonderful democratizing um, effect on Absolutely. everything, doesn't Absolutely. it? You know, and um, and and I and I and and that's you know the classic examples. Everyone pulls out. You know, the music, the record company uh, gets pulled out all the time. Publishing industry gets a lot of panning for for how digital's affected it in the travel industry. But basically, it's happening across all industries. You know, um, it cuts out the middleman, it democratizes information, and it enables people that you know would have really struggled to 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 launch or or to market their businesses previously, give some great platforms and. Something that's quite interesting from a luxury perspective that we're seeing a lot of is, you know, social media, particularly Instagram, has increased exposure to new, smaller startup uh, brands that are competing in the luxury space due to that kind of low cost but quite high impact um, brand awareness they can generate. Um, you know, the barrier to entry is pretty low, but if they get it right, you know, the right um, influences potentially or, or, or whatever, they, they, they can really do some damage. Um, LVMH, who are yep. you know, one of the one of the bigger luxury conglomerates, um, have uh, for a long time have had a, 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 a group called L Capital, which is their uh, yep, that's their uh, investment entity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Um, they have, uh, I think, either directly from L Capital as a spin-off, or maybe from the from the parent group, have now uh, launched a, a new sort of almost like a kind of a VC. Uh, firm that is yep. spe specifically focused on these types of businesses, on these smaller, um, emerging, um, typically almost 100% marketed via Instagram type luxury businesses. 
So they, you know, you know when that's happening that that um, that they're taking these guys pretty seriously. Right. I mean, look, if you look at the luxury businesses over time, right? Even uh, even so, LVMH, Louis Vuitton. You have to talk about the brand as well. Even that brand for a while was very unique to Europe. It really started when Asia started getting rich, right? And the Japanese started going to France to buy product. And then they realized they need to start, start opening franchise stores in Japan. They did the same thing in China. And then little brands, like you said, so whether they're launching, not launching, but whether they're using Instagram as the mechanism for their distribution or they're opening physical stores, right? There are still brands in France that are very high-end, like Goyard was one of them, right, that really just started to expand globally because there was just so much demand for people coming onto their little shop in Paris mm. to try to mm. buy their stuff. And if you expand that out into, there's no reason why you can't use Instagram for that now. But you're right. Once you see that, the barrier to entry for creating a luxury brand or any brand, I talk about this all the time, you know, there's no reason why today an individual cannot create a brand that's either luxurious, middle market, or low market because the technology that's out there to allow that frictionless distribution makes it possible to at least try. Absolutely. Yeah, and in the old days, that wasn't possible because you know, your luxury brand was literally determined whether it was you know, clothing in England on German Street or you know, leather goods in Paris or in Italy, right? And all that stuff had to be in Milan or in New York. But now that's no longer necessary. Yeah, you can get some gravitas by having a store in one of those places. But boy, your ability to distribute frictionlessly on the internet, again, using Instagram, using any of that technology, is now at a position where anybody can try to launch that type of brand. And what you're saying is people are actually starting to do that. And that's really cool. Right, but that also comes back to the, the question right at the beginning of, of, of how do you define luxury? Yeah, right? exactly. That's and, why I love this topic so much. And, and my, my point about, you know, it was traditionally the value came from, from the scarcity of raw materials and then the, the, the input of skilled craftsmen. Yes, at a certain level, that remains the case. But, you know, globalization and capitalism have made, you know, the acquisition of, of, of the raw materials far, far easier, Right. Um, and and modern uh, 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 industrial techniques have have not. I mean, they, they haven't replaced skilled craftsmen, but they've made doing some of the things that were previously only possible by you know by skilled craftsmen possible and accessible. Um, I mean, just look at three D printing. Right. You know, where's where's that going to take us? You know, I mean, I kind of feel that intrinsically, you know. It, it, it's it, we're a long way off someone saying this is a luxury product and by the way it was 3d printed i, I just feel that those two things are fundamentally uh, not aligned at this point in time but um you know uh it, 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 take the example of a, of a of a handmade suit right i love the idea of of uh, of, a, of a very skilled tailor with years of experience taking out a pair of scissors and cutting out my my individual pattern exactly but i know that a laser could do it more accurately <laughs> but but again isn't part of luxury right I, I always go back to this like i got a pair of shoes made once <laughs> this yeah. is years ago okay i got a pair of custom-made shoes and i originally went to hong kong and got it fitted right you could and you could do this over the internet now right like you said with lasers and digital 3d printing but the one thing that they really and i wanted to have these sort of bespoke shoes but that fit me perfectly right and 
you know, it was much less expensive than buying a pair of seven hundred or a thousand dollar pair of shoes at the time. But what they did was they really mucked up. They forgot to allow for me, and it was just my shitty choice for the shoemaker, right? But I couldn't get my foot into the shoe because they built it so um, tight to my ankle. If that makes any sense, like it was so bespoke for me that I couldn't even put the shoe on. So. A- <laughs> You understand what I'm saying? Like, I'm not explaining this properly, right? But, like, if they had just manufactured the shoe on my foot, it would have fit me perfectly. But they didn't, they didn't control for me actually getting my foot into the shoe. So I just laughed when I got it. And I agree with you to a certain extent. Like, part of luxury is it doesn't fit exactly perfectly. It drapes really nicely, if I can use that as an analogy. Yeah. But it's, it's partially the fact that it's not perfect. That imperfection, to me, is part of luxury. Like, yeah, if a machine had done this, it would have been perfect. But part of the luxury for me is it's not perfect. So that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, luxury products uh, essentially are sold on a certain promise that there's, there's an elevation above mass produced goods. And that elevation can be, you know, the heritage of the brand and alignment with um, the, the DNA of the brand. It can be the fact that it's been touched by X amount of human hands, you know, whatever it is, right. That's, that's where that um, uh, that uh, little bit of extra comes in. So I'd love to get your opinion on this. It's slightly off topic, but not necessarily, right? So I was talking to somebody in the brand space, and they said to me, you know, one of the things that's going to happen over time is that brands themselves, right, because they're so easy to create and so easy to market today, they're also going to be fleeting, right? In the sense that like Rolex has been around, like you said, for 150, 200 years. I don't know the exact dates, right? But uh, it I feels... think it started about nine. It, yeah, it's not that old. No, it's not, right? Yeah. But some of these Swiss watchmakers, like you said, are around 100 to 150 years old. Mm-hmm. But the idea that this person was talking about to me was you can still create a luxury brand, but have it be... Remember, you talked about scarcity, right? Mm. And it's only like has a limited run, it's never coming back. That brand has an image and a name and a distribution channel, but it's only going to be there for three years, maybe two years, whatever it is, and then it's gone. Right? So BMW did this with the Z8 at a certain point in time, right? They produced yeah. it, they hyped it, and then they just stopped making it. Yeah. So what's your view on that? I mean, we can talk about it in the watch space, but even in the high-end space, we're like – you roll something out and you kind of hint at the fact that we're not going to make so many of these and we're never going to make it again. Mm. Does that add back into that exclusivity and the scarcity from a brand perspective? <laughs> so this is actually something which, I mean, this is definitely straight out the playbook of, of, of a lot of luxury products and service providers, right? I don't so, know. Okay. I don't know. Cause I kind of just made it up after that conversation that I had with this person, right? Yeah, no, this, 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 this has been going on for a while and, and it does, it depends, it all depends on the, how it's presented, right? So, um, special edition version of X, which yeah, is yeah. basically the same as the normal version, but you know, the, this kind of stuff goes on, especially in the world of watches. Um, and if it's done in the right way, it's really well received by, by the, by the customer base. Often it's, but it can also be, a very obvious marketing gimmick, which people immediately react badly to, right? So it can go either way. Um, sort of, uh, it's not, it's not, it's, it's not, in, it's not forced obsequience. It's for, it's kind of forced. Yeah. Kind of scarcity. like uh, manufactured scarcity. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I find that it, it doesn't go down superbly well with, with, with 
with the customer base in general. Uh, I, I think people kind of know that they're that they're being played. Yeah. I, I, again, I I don't know, right? I'm not saying that that's a proper solution or a panacea for anything, but I just thought the whole concept was really interesting. And because I don't play in that space necessarily, right? Like my buddy owns a a, a Z8, and he bought it 15 years ago or more. And and one of the reasons why he bought it, and I thought it was insane when he did. Yeah, it must have been like 15 years ago because his son at the time was only one. He said to me, I'm buying this so my son can have one when he's of driving age. And I'm like, dude, that's like 15 years in the future, if that. Yeah. But he bought it and he owns it and he loves it and he shipped it around the world, right? So the point is that in that luxury space, the people that are buying those products, they're kind of indifferent to price, right? So the the demand elasticity to price, right? Sorry to bring up the economic terminology, but I know you understand that well. It's just that it's not there. You can almost charge whatever you want for it if you create the right level of scarcity. Because even you mentioned this earlier, you know, diamonds themselves are not actually scarce. No. Right? That's a sort of manufactured scarcity, right? The diamond production that takes place in mines by De Beers is heavily controlled. Yeah. So I guess yeah. people are kind of used to – I don't know. And I'm just throwing it out there, right? I'm not an expert at any level. I just – I love the conversation. Yeah. I, I, I think it boils down to presentation like everything in luxury. Yeah, fair um, If it's um, – you know, if it's, a, if it's a special edition or if it's a limited run of something done in the right way, then I think it can be very well received. Um, you know, especially if there's a, a reason behind it. Let's say, you know, the founder has passed away. Yeah, or yeah. Um, you know something which, or, or it's, or there's a charitable donation attached to 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 these first five or first ten special, you know, whatever it is. I think if you can do it in the right way, then it then it then it can be extremely well received. Um, but I think, and this is not exclusive to luxury, you know, but it's right. it's 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 just that, um, okay, to a certain extent, people that are looking for rare um, uh, uh, um, products which which come with a higher price tag because of the, the materials that have been used or, or, or whatever or the processes they've gone through. Right. And um, often, not always, but often, that group of people tend to be a little bit more discerning. They tend to be a bit more switched on. So if you try to, um, you know, fob them off with by saying, oh, we're, you know, this is this is. 25 times the price because there's only five of them and you know that it's been done and there's no real difference between that product and, and, a, and a similar product from the same company. Yep, fair enough. You're likely to get a bit of a negative reaction, I would say. Yeah, but then and then there's pushback over time, right? In other words, you lose the opportunity later then to sell them more product, right? Yeah, exactly. And and and, and the the uh, what you'll tend to find with, with luxury products is that they – um, they're very sticky and, and, and luxury brands rather people tend to to stay you know once they've once they've come through the door and they bought something they they do tend to look after their clients very very well and and one of the ways they do that and, and sometimes this backfires is through ranging right so yep, yep. Um, you know again I mentioned LVMH earlier on not not to zero in on them there are other groups so Richemon group and and, uh, and and so on but these big groups, essentially they're businesses like any other, right? Um, they have the best lipstick uh, uh, on the front end, but they are businesses um, uh, ultimately underneath. And they, they're under pressure to grow from their owners, from their shareholders, etc. year on year. Now, there's a fundamental disconnect there between a business that needs to grow and a business that promises to serve a lucky few. Right. 
So obviously, you get growth as 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 uh, as countries become, you know, as, in, as as income levels go up, etc. But the other way you get growth is by creating lower barriers to entry for your products. Right. So that's why, and the the, the two product sets that, are, that exemplify this the best are branded sunglasses and fragrances. <laughs> Tell me. So so okay. So for the vast majority of of, of kind of luxury branded fragrances, right? They're not actually produced by um, even an affiliated company, right? It's, right. it's outsourced, it's licensed. Yep. Um, and the same goes for, for, for sunglasses. I mean, I remember I looked a few years ago for a project I was working on. Um, this may not be true today, but, but a few years ago, the, the products with the highest um, margin at that particular time were... Uh, uh, Cinema popcorn, um, wow. coffee in places like Starbucks and Dean Luca and so on, um, and um, branded sunglasses. Yeah. And the reason for that is that you're basically talking, let's be honest, it's a piece of molded plastic, right? I don't care what lens it claims to have in it, it's cheap to produce, it's mass produced. Um, and, and it's easy to do. So right? you've, you've just brought up a business I'd love to talk about. Sorry, I'm going to interrupt you just for a second. So Luxottica, right, is a brand that no one's ever heard of, but they own something like 75 per 80 or 80% yeah. of the eyeglass business. Yes, they do. Right? And, the, and, they, and they're like the general motors of eyeglasses in the sense that they'll produce eyeglasses for 25 bucks and for 2,500 bucks, and no one's ever heard of them except for you, right, because you know that space. But I love that business because – Again, it's like, do you want to buy a Pontiac or do you want to buy a Cadillac, right? And sure, that, those brands don't mean that much anymore today, but Luxottica's done an incredible job of controlling that market over time. Like you said, it's a $25 thing, and that also birthed the necessity or the ability for Warby Parker, right? Yeah. I mean, I also think that for some reason, you know, the branded versions do, do also tend to look and feel a bit better. Agreed. Right? Agreed. But, but, not, but not to the point where they're worth that much more right i mean it is a little bit of a um uh, uh it's kind of funny but i suppose if you're going to wear something on your face um then then you're willing to invest a little bit more in it than let's say i don't know underwear or whatever well just the stuff um, that people can see and the stuff that people can't see are going to have a radically different um yeah. ability to be able to have you pay more for it right so yeah like do i really need ralph Lauren socks Maybe not, but I do want an Hermes tie, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so I can't remember why I was talking about margin, but but oh yeah, it was ranging. It was yep. ranging. Yep. So, ranging. So, so the way that it's one of the ways they a lot of these groups continue to to grow year on year is by providing a lower barrier to entry to 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 access for certain people to to access right. their their brand right at, at every level. Um, and uh, and that comes right back to to the point we we discussed at the beginning, which is it's inherently a subjective and very slippery term, luxury. I love it. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I love it. So, but and all we've really done is we've really only talked about the one like one small sector in which you guys operate, right? So, what's the what's the overall goal of a company like high end media? You do more than just the crown product and the watches, right? So we have Crown. Another one of the products we've published is called Billionaire. I like it. So, so yeah. So, so Billionaire. So the company's five years old, um, and Billionaire was the first uh, product that we launched. 
Um, our chairman, we're independently owned, by the way, by a gentleman called David Lepan. David is a, a, a serial entrepreneur, um, and his background is in uh, actually in kind of sort of data businesses, really. Um, anyone, I know that you you were a trader, I think, yep. right? I call you worked in bank. So, yep. have you heard of a product called um, World Check? No, but that doesn't okay, mean so, it's not big. It just means that I haven't heard of it. Yeah, well, it's it's probably it maybe. I mean, it's more of a it's it's kind of more for it, it's it's basically a know your client. It's a piece of know your client software. So okay, that might, might stuff, not, yeah. yeah, that might not have applied to you, but but some of your listeners might might know World Check. So so basically, it was a it was a database of politically exposed people and people that you just kind of shouldn't or couldn't do business with. Um, and 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 him and his wife and a, and a trusted uh, uh, team that he built grew that into a very significant business wow. and, and exited from that for a, um, a serious amount of money and uh, and that's now operated by uh, the Reuters Group so they own they own that product makes sense in the context of the rest of their products but yeah it makes sense yeah further down the line he invested in a company called Wealthex. Oh, wow. Wealthex, for all intents and purposes, is kind of the opposite to WorldCheck. It's a database of people that you definitely would want to do. <laughs> so, so Wealthex had uh, 200 odd researchers doing nothing all day but finding information about um, ultra high net worth individuals, which is, as most people define, is, is kind of people with a net worth of 30 million US dollars and above. And above, yeah. Um, so, uh, they would then, so, so some of this information is, I mean, it's, it's all publicly accessible. It's just about knowing where to find it. So it comes from things like, um, land registry documents in the U S boat registration documents, company's house information in the UK, right? So, so in the UK, um, all businesses have to lodge their, 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 uh, accounts every couple of years with company's house. I think you can pay a pound and download that, that annual report from from the online uh, from the from the online portal, right? If you know how to read that, um, you know as much as companies try to hide it, it's pretty easy to see what shareholders or what owners are taking out of the business. Yep. In most cases, so so that's that's where you know it's publicly accessible, but it's kind of expensive and time consuming to to get hold of that information, and then that then became enriched with stuff which was released publicly on credible news organisations. So, um, if I phoned up WealthX and said, "Oh, I've, I've looked at this uh, this customer profile, and this is actually my client, and I know he has a green Lamborghini, and you've said he's got a red Lamborghini." Um, they wouldn't be able to change that information in the data space because that's that's just someone picking up the phone, right? Um, but if it was printed in, let's say, the New York Times or the Guardian or the Financial Times that the guy had a collection of cars and included a green Lamborghini, then that would be okay, right? So yep. um, they created these profiles on 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 the world's ultra ultra wealthy. And um, for a fee, provided access for luxury products and service providers to financial institutions, to charitable organizations, um, you know, access for, for customer acquisition and also just to understand more about how that group of people behaves. What they didn't provide was a way to actually access the people on the list. So our chairman decided to launch Higher Media, um, which at that time was under the mono brand Billionaire. Um, which was a biannual coffee table book and a dot com. So that was the genesis of the business. We used that data, and then over time, through partnerships and through um, a lot of uh, uh, direct mailing, we we built out a um, 
a database of, of, of readers. Currently, have just over 10,000 ultra-high net worth individuals across Western Europe and North America that receive a quarterly edition of, of Billionaire. How many is that, you said? Just over 10,000. Okay, that's a lot. It's a decent amount when you consider who these people are. Yeah, that's and, a lot. Yeah, that's what, what I mean. Right. And again, we talked about niches before, right? So 10,000 is not a ton of people, but boy, that's a great market, right? Yeah. So our, our clients are, you know, yacht and jet companies, high jewelry, a lot of the sort of people that we've been talking about on, on, the, on, on, on the conversation already, right? Right. And then um, into 2015, we launched a localized degree. We've always been based in Singapore, but we, didn't re- we weren't really taking an advantage of, of being in this market from a media perspective. I mean, there are lots of other advantages to being in Singapore, but we essentially had a, a product that was being distributed in, in other marketplaces, right? Got so it. we launched uh, a localized edition in 2015, and the, the Singapore edition of Billionaire is far more, fo- it's, it's not really focused on ultra high net worth lifestyle, right? It's, it's much more focused on business leadership and entrepreneurship. Um, and we take the, the name, um, uh, we, we take more of a theoretical uh, sort of endpoint approach to the name. So, so rather than being a, a product for people that are already in the ultra high net worth category, it's yeah. kind of a product for people that aspire to be there. It's aspirational. Yeah, or, well, or even to, to the extent that you, you could argue that, okay, so if, you, if you're 75 years old, you've spent 2.2 billion seconds on the planet. So, you know, if you, if you think about it like that, you know, time is the only real currency. Once it's gone, it's gone, right? You have a finite amount of it. So exactly. how are you going to spend that time? Yeah, it's the one or, thing you can't get back, right? Right. Or, or the argument that, you know, striving to affect the lives of a billion people with your, with your product or service. Right. So, so that's more the, 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 the way that we take the, the, the title in, in the localized context. And we actually write it differently as well. We brand it as BLLNR. So, so the local edition is, is slightly different, but some of the content is shared. Um, we, the same year, we acquired Crown uh, in Singapore. Uh, so that was an acquisition of a, of a local a local business. We then quickly launched that in Malaysia in 2016, and we licensed it out in Vietnam at the end of that year. Um, Crown's website is currently um, the big, in terms of traffic is the is the biggest watch media website in Southeast Asia. So tell me again what the what the URL is. It's crownwatchblog.com is the parent URL. We have different iterations across different marketplaces. But but this is interesting, right? Because this is a market. I mean, and again, this is it's, this feels like the beginning of a new conversation. But this is. This is a market that's really been seeded over time to like the Rob Report, right? So the Rob Report goes out and it just it, it publishes to probably no more than ten thousand people as well. But it is a magazine for billionaires, right? In the sense that the highest end cars, the highest end watches and stuff, but there had been no competition there. Like this is a space as well that's begging for competition, right? Yeah, well we, we well we certainly think there's a lot of opportunity, clearly. Yeah. Um, and remember, the the Rob Report was never really focused on Asia. Well, I do know they run a business in Vietnam and in Thailand as well, right? But again, yeah. but again, you know, with a really fast growing market and people getting rich really faster than they were than they ever have been in this region in history, there's a massive opportunity to come in and figure out: is there an Asian specific business that can get built here that's Asia first, right? You know, people talk a lot about localization. It's more than just translating something into Vietnamese. Yeah, absolutely, and that was something that I that I learned. Um, I mean, I think I already had a sense of it, but but I saw it firsthand when I was based in India. 
Yeah. Um, you know, the amount of times I would, I would meet somebody, uh, you know, at a social event or whatever. And I'd say a conversation would go something like this. Okay. Hi, I'm Andrew. This is what I do. Okay. What's your name? I'm so-and-so. And this is what I do. Okay, great. And then they would say, we are the number two or one or three or whatever, you know, glass manufacturer or, you know, whatever business it was, you know, um, uh, widget maker um, in Germany or France or, you know, America, whatever, wherever the guy had come from. Yep. And basically our strategy is we're going to come over here and we're going to, we're going to dominate the marketplace right. because we're just going to take what we do and we're just going to do it here. Good luck. And then you kind of think, okay, well, I'm pretty sure that there's a... <laughs> There's already a lady over there doing this thing, too. You just don't know that. Yeah, exactly. And then (laughs) the guy would be gone within like 12 months. Sure. You know, just. And so, and it's just bizarre and blows my mind how how that's still. It's arrogance, really, isn't it? Massive. um, And again, you've really touched on something that is really close to my heart. That's one of the reasons why I love being in Asia, because there's part of me that just loves the arrogance of watching people come in from out of town and just thinking they can run roughshod over, you know, centuries of culture and just say, you know, at its best, okay, look, we're going to throw away all your chopsticks. Everyone's going to use forks, and the forks you're going to have to use are the ones that we've been making in, like, New York for the last 150 years, because it's just never going to happen. Yeah, exactly. And in, the, and in actual fact, it's the uh, the opposite is true. Yeah, you know, uh, China and uh, one belt, one road, and, and everything that's happening in Indonesia and all the rest of it. I mean, we it's, it's <laughs> I, I see the opposite happening more than more than anything else in the next you know ten years or so. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I'll I'll go you one better and say like over the next fifty years, but I I think you're right, and I think it gets right back to. The comment that you made right at the beginning of this conversation is, how do you define, right, what luxury is? It's the same concept, right? Are you, not you, but is one arrogant enough to believe that the Asian perception of luxury, whether it's the scarcity of the goods and the inputs or the craftsmanship that goes into making it, is it going to look exactly like it has looked like in Europe for the past 300 years or in America for the last 150 years? And I think it's an open question as to whether that's the case or not. But what you're saying is that the media business that you're in is in the process of trying to figure that out. And that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, well, I mean, I got a, you just reminded me of a great story. I won't, I cannot name the brand. It wouldn't be right. But, yeah, tell me, um, tell me. I, uh, I was once seated next to um, a guy that ran um, uh, a British, they're a heritage brand, um, and it's still family run. Uh, and they produce... Um, mostly leather goods, and they've been very successful over you know um, a long period of time in in Britain and and in and in Europe, and uh, and had and had had some requests for uh, their their first requests from from Asia from Japan actually for some of their products. Um, I think this was he was telling me the story you know sort of five years ago, but I think it related back to sort of like the the mid eighties. And um, so they said, great, right? We sent, he sent the first container of product over to, uh, to Tokyo. <laughs> and they got a call uh, saying, oh, uh, I'm afraid we're sending, you know, 90% of this back. It's, it's no good. Why? And he, and he was thinking, that's crazy. I mean, these are the same products we send to Italy, we send to France. I mean, this is our best stuff. Um, 
And I wish you could tell you the brand because they are, you know, they're a, they're a, they're a big name. Yep. And, and he said, I've got to find out what the hell's going on. So he gets on a plane, goes over to, uh, to Tokyo. And he goes into this room where they've got dozens of guys with huge kind of, you know, those kind of dental magnifying glasses looking at, uh, you know, uh, let's say like a wallet. And, and they would say, look, you know, there's, there's 23 and a half stitches on the right side and there's only 23 stitches on the left side. Yeah. That's just, you know, what are you doing? Right. And so from that point, whenever it was in the mid eighties or, or, or early nineties, you know, they, they then re-engineered their business to make for what they call the Japanese standard. Right. And so now those are the products that go, that go everywhere else. So there you go. Sign of things to come, I think. Yeah. And look, I mean, I dealt with that for 20 something years living and working in Japan, right? I mean, you couldn't, even in the trading side, you couldn't be off by one yen. It didn't matter. It wasn't the value. It was the, it was the attention to details. Like I can't explain to my boss why we're off. I can't do it. Same thing. Anyway, look, this has been an amazing conversation for me. <laughs> and I, like, I absolutely just love learning new stuff every day. And I really appreciate you spending the time talking about this sector, something I know very little about, and help educating me and also the people that listen to this tonight. So I really appreciate your time. Well, I really appreciate you uh, you having me on the show, Michael. No, like I said, a big fan. Yeah, thank you. And do you want to tell people um, how they can get in touch with you, how they can find out more about you know Crown and Billionaire and high-end media and the rest of the stuff you do? What's the best way to get in contact with you or just find out more? Um, probably, well, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Andrew Nichols, N-I-C-H-O-L-L-S. Um, or you can go to highend.media. Uh, awesome. Look, this has been Michael Waits, ATP Stories. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Michael. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast. Find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com.